Mindfulness Mode, Episode 40. When I noticed anxiety, I just kind of sat with the physical sensation without trying to push it away. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for the great reviews on iTunes. I'm going to read one by M.R. Alexander at Sustainable Mind. You can tell that the host really cares about this topic and does a great job in sharing his passion with the listener. Lots of actionable tips that are applicable no matter what you are doing. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Eric Tivers on the line today. Hey, Eric, are you in mindfulness mode? I am present. (laughs) Perfect. Eric Tivers is a psychotherapist and licensed clinical social worker, sharing his expertise with clients as a consultant in private practice. He specializes in ADHD as well as high-functioning autism. Eric is a national speaker, a coach, and he also hosts the popular ADHD Rewired podcast. Eric laughingly refers to himself as a recovering perfectionist. Eric, tell me a little bit more about you. Tell Mindful Tribe what makes you tick. What makes me tick is the it's my own kind of self-awareness and the discovery of of when I was in college. Uh, I almost failed out of college and when my my freshman year of college, I um almost failed out. My first semester got a 2.2 Second semester got a 1.8. Now, my first semester was sort of an accomplishment because I didn't really open up the book. So a 2.2 without studying is pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) But a 1.8 with studying is an indication of something's going on. Yes. And I learned that I had ADHD. Uh, um, And really from that point on, it changed the nature of how I view life. Um, You know, so I, I... started taking medication and it wasn't really until I got into grad school that I really started to explore, hey, what does this actually mean to have ADHD? And so I struggled a lot growing up and I struggled even through college. I had to work really, really hard um, to do well. And so what makes me tick is knowing that when we understand ourselves, we can do so much better and we can leave some of the the shame and some of the, the just the emotional challenges that come with not understanding how our brain works. Uh, so that's really what makes me tick, knowing that we can do better when we know how our brains work. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. You know what? I am going to really love talking to you. Would you tell us, Eric, what inspired you to get into mindfulness or to think in a mindful way? Share that with us. Absolutely. So I know that uh, from listening to your podcast that you're also very interested in, in bullying, right? Yes, I am. So interestingly, I was kind of thinking about about this and I first started meditation in grad school. And I started meditation in grad school as a response to a period of very high anxiety. Mm-hmm. What triggered my very high anxiety was I was fired from an internship oh. about two or three months before I was supposed to graduate from my, my master's program. That must have been tough. Wow. That was a really, really tough. Oh. And so 
I mean, I remember just like sitting you know, at, the, at the time I was living with my parents yes. and um, I went to uh, University of Illinois at Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I just remember having such intense physical anxiety that that I, I thought I was going to jump out of my skin. I mean, yeah. it was so for me, I developed a practice of mindfulness that was more of a guided meditation because my brain like kept going everywhere. Yes. And so kind of tapping into that idea of listening to something was uh, helped me. It was kind of like, here's this train that's moving. You can come on board and we'll take you to where you want to go. Yes. That worked for me. And so I would get into these long practices of, you know, I would focus on breathing. I would set up candles around me. I would, um, I would even do these breathing exercises where I would sort of make candles dance or I would make the candle further and further away, but really focusing on my breathing and connecting with that candle through my breath. And so, you know, this was just sort of a self-discovered practice that I that sort of created. Yes. Interesting. And then, you know, so I, as time went on and, and I was able to get another internship and uh, I graduated uh, from my graduate program, I graduated with a 4.0. So, I, you know, I did, did well, but I went through a really difficult period um, you know, with that. So I, that's where I kind of got into, to, uh, meditation. Now today, I wouldn't say that I have an active practice of meditation, but I do have an active practice of mindful awareness. Ah, very interesting. When you said that you make the candles dance, Eric, can you expand on that a little bit for us? Absolutely. So, you know, my brain likes to play games <laughs> mm-hmm. because to me, that's just more exciting. So for, for me to just sit there quietly, it was, it's really hard. It's, you know, sometimes when I get into these practices of meditation, because I do go kind of back and forth uh, and it typically correlates when I'm going through periods of anxiety is, is when I tend to, to kind of re-engage in a formal practice of meditation. But it seems like when I'm initially beginning that practice, my brain sort of likes to taunt me yes. <laughs> as, you know, as I'm sitting there trying to breathe slowly and just being aware of my breath and really just trying to, you know, notice my thoughts without judging them. Then there's that voice in my head that just laughs at me for trying to even do this. Yes. <laughs> it's like the more I try to quiet my mind, the louder all of those other thoughts have become. Um, and so I become very aware that anytime I'm trying to re-engage in this practice, that I have to kind of go through that for a few days for that to kind of quiet down. Right. Um, so when it comes to how I use this candle, so what I will do is, and when I would do it for a while, I would get really good. And I called it's one of my like party tricks where I can, mm-hmm. I can, from a, almost like from across the room, I could blow out a candle. Really? Yes. And it really requires a really intense focus. You have to be really still with your body. You have to really kind of lock in on where your breath goes. So having that very directional breath. And, you know, I begin. So what I actually do is I'll have the the candle not that far from me. And I'll put my hand in front of my mouth so I can feel the direction of where my breath is going to kind of align it with where the candle is. And you can Mm -hmm. see that that it's making the candle move. And then I keep moving the candle back and I'll continue this practice. And... What I will do is then I'll take a kind of a deep breath and do a quick kind of uh, um, almost like you would blow an air dart, like a real quick uh, shot of breath. Yes. Now, what's really interesting is that if you miss, if you don't get it, 
you can't just try again. Oh. You have to like really kind of get that focus again, really be connected. And I really will get somewhere between five and 10 breaths where I've made that candle move on every single breath. And what's really interesting is the further away the candle is, it will take a couple seconds for that candle to move because it takes a little right. bit of time for your, the, the air to travel to the candle. Oh, so it's like you're shooting a bullet of air which hits that flame in exactly the right place. Yes. And how far away is that flame from you? Uh, typically it's a couple of feet, but I've been able to do it maybe eight or nine feet. Eight or nine feet. That is amazing. That is really the coolest thing. And where'd you get the idea to do this, Eric? You know, I think it was as I was sort of doing this, I think it began, it began with, I had candles around me just in a, in a basic kind of meditation kind of practice. And then I noticed that my breathing was causing one of the candles to move. And then so I sort of just got curious about it and began to play with it. And so that's, it was sort of this naturally progressive uh, discovery of, oh, I wonder what would happen if I move it further back. How far away can I move this candle and still have an impact on the candle? And now we have the Eric Tivers Mindfulness Candle Exercise. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting. Well, I'm interested, Eric, if you've ever had challenges in mindfulness. Have you ever been at a point where you just thought, man, I'm just frustrated. I don't know if this is working for me. Have you ever had those kinds of thoughts? Yes. The, the frustration piece is when I am trying to engage in a uh, kind of re-engage in a practice of meditation. You know, it's on my podcast, I always say that starting is the hardest part. Yes. And I think that it's very true when you're engaging in a specific practice of, of meditation. Um, because it's as soon as you try to quiet the mind, it's like you notice how loud everything else is. Yes. You know, and it's really being aware of we have to kind of let go of how we want things to be and just allow for what is for what is to be. And if that means that you're just allowing all of the racing thoughts to just be, then that's what it is. Um, so I, I find that it takes, for me, it takes three to five days of really consistently spending at least 10 minutes trying to just sit and kind of quiet the mind. And it can be really frustrating. Um, one of the things that I have done is I worked with like somebody else um, almost as an accountability partner to kind of get myself to get through the initial hurdle of just sitting for 10 minutes. Right. Yes. So it sounds like you're saying that if you try too hard, it just doesn't work. You just have to relax and allow it. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. And I think with a lot of, of things like this, especially when you're when you're kind of dealing with anxiety, I look at a lot of these things as almost as like paradoxical and it, like, you know, the idea of the, the Chinese finger trap. Tell us about that. You no. Know, so that the Chinese finger trap is like an old like toy that it's it, it's um, threaded together. You put your fingers in it and the tighter you pull your fingers away to try to get your fingers out, the the harder your, your fingers are stuck. So the way to get your fingers out of there are to push in, to lean into the discomfort. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen or heard that before. And that's really interesting. I'll have to check it out. Because, you know, there is a practice um, 
of what's called exposure and response prevention, which is a it's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy okay. that looks at rewiring the brain by so when you know anxiety is a a normal response in certain situations that are going to be helpful for really for our survival and sometimes just for alerting us that we need to pay attention to something. The problem is that for a lot of people, anxiety, we're, we're getting the type of anxiety that would be helpful if we were being chased by a bear. Yes. When we are thinking about returning an email. Yes. Which is very unuseful. It's very right. unhelpful. So what we want to do if this is a repeating pattern, what happens is, you know, our, our brain likes to, to maintain a level of kind of homeostasis. Yes. So if we are facing, if we have a stimulus that is, is causing us to feel anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so we say, you know, I'm just going to go do something else. We call that procrastination, avoidance, right? <laughs> yes. So we go do something else, but then the anxiety comes down. So the brain learns that, oh, you know what? I'm going to keep sending you these messages because you listened to this message. So it was clearly important. So I'm going to keep sending you those anxious feelings, that, that those thoughts that are creating those feelings. So we run away from the stressful situation. We momentarily alle- alleviate our anxiety, except the next time we're in that same situation, we're right back where we started. So what we want to do is lean into that anxiety and actually intentionally do things that will increase that anxiety and sit with it. Okay. So that's why they say face your fear and do it anyway. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think part of when we look at, at mindfulness-based practices, it's looking at through you know, our experience in a non-judgmental way and with curiosity. You know, I talk to my, a lot of my clients about, you know, what kind of why are you asking? Is it the judgmental why? Why can't I do this? Or why is this so hard? Or is it the curious why? And that's why can't I do this? Why is this so hard? Same exact words, but we're emphasizing a different part of it, which completely changes our mindset and our emotional response to those questions. So instead of saying, why can't I do this? So why can't they do this? Then I'm getting curious mm. and then I'm exploring and may actually see, find answers that way. Right. Yes. That's, that explains that curiosity piece, mindful tribe. So, you know, we hear about curiosity when we talk about mindfulness, but it's not always easy to understand exactly what is meant by it. But you're hearing the explanation right here from the expert, Eric Tivers. Wow. Thank you, Eric. Ah, you're welcome. Eric, I want to talk about your career as a therapist. Tell us about a specific challenge or a specific situation you faced and how mindfulness might have played a part. So there was a – when I first started my practice, there was a, a kid that I worked with. Um, he, I think he was eight or nine or nine years old at the time. This kid was really bright as a whip. Uh, he played a lot of, of – I had a great difficulty with – kind of um, making room for uncomfortable feelings. He would really either shut down or he would actually could get really aggressive at times. And, you know, fortunately I was just starting my practice. So I had a lot of time in my, my calendar. So I worked with him pretty intensely. And I mean, this kid just did such, I mean, I worked with him for about two or three years and he did such amazing work. Mm. And there was some assignment that his teacher gave him where he was supposed to, write some list of like 10 things he could do 
when he has nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he wrote on his list was just notice the boredom and be curious about it. Hmm. And I just thought that was so interesting that a kid that was, you know, nine or 10 years old at, at that time was really became self-aware. And we, we really explored it through things like mindful eating of pizza. You know, I told him to, to, you know, so I know he was going to get pizza at night. And I told him on that first piece of pizza, what I really want you to do is first just open the box and pay attention to the sounds and the, and the, the tactile sensations of just opening the box. Really describe everything that, that your senses are, are feeding you. That when we take that first piece, first notice everything, how it feels in your hands. Notice how it smells. Take that first bite, but don't even bite it yet. Just put it to your lips. And really just increasing, you know, it's paying attention in a way that we don't normally pay attention. Yes. And, you know, so he really developed this mindful awareness and it was, it really helped him learn what his body was telling him because this was the type of kid that, that everyone else around him would know he was starting to feel anxious. He would be the last one to realize he was feeling anxious. Yes. And doing these kind of exercises of mindful eating, mindful exercise, um, mindful walking, it really increased his awareness of, you know, from him being calm to him being just mildly elevated with his anxiety. Because at that point, he could bring himself back down. You know, when, when we're already at a, say, an a eight or a nine on that 10 point scale, all of those cognitive thinking, rational abilities that we typically would have access to, we really don't have access to it at that point. Right. You know, and so by practicing mindfulness in a calm state, it, was allow- it allowed him to access that ability when he noticed that he was uh, becoming more anxious. That is a great story, Eric. I really appreciate that. And, you know, having a son myself who is autistic, I I just want to ask you a couple of questions. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, is that why I have the Mindfulness Mode podcast? Because I was moved into mindfulness partly because of my anti-bullying work and because of my son. But, you know, my wife and I have really worked hard with him, helping him to uh, be more aware of what society expects in a mm-hmm. lot of ways because I really feel that's important. But it's interesting because sometimes I feel like, wow, he was born mindful. Like there are some areas where he just seems so calm and so mindful. And like, for instance, if he's having a shower, he'll just take so long and he just wants to, his body to dry off just naturally. He doesn't, you know, want a towel dry. He just wants to completely take his time. And, and of course, me being dead, I'm like, okay, we really need to move on. Okay, we really need to go. Yeah. Do you have any words of advice for me as a father, Eric? Well, I do think that's a really good observation because I think that, that um, you know, working with individuals uh, who are on the autism spectrum, I think one of the things is, is that they notice so much. Yes. Um, sometimes we might say too much in the realm of, you know, part of our, our 
what our brain is supposed to do is to inhibit stimuli that is not related to task-oriented behaviors. Okay. Yes. When, uh, but for somebody with with autism, that is becomes increasingly difficult because their the information that they are getting from their senses is it really competes with everything else, and and. So the the prioritization becomes what do I feel, what do I see, what do I smell, what do I notice, not what do I have to do next, what's on the calendar, how are other people affected by having to wait for me. Right. And and with working with individuals with autism across the entire spectrum, you know, it's amazing the things that that some of these these folks I work with will notice that, that I had not noticed previously. Yes. I mean, what, one of the first kids that I ever worked with uh, who had autism, he was a 14-year-old boy, um, nonverbal, uh, very kind of classic autism, kind of mm-hmm. what we would call low-functioning autism. Mm-hmm. But he, he was always amazing to me. He had this ability to take any flat kind of surface, hard, that was a hard object, and spin it on his middle finger. Okay. And I was always fascinated by it. It's like, how are you doing that? Right. You know, it's like he could take a book. He could so he could find that that middle focal yeah. point, and it's just so amazing to me. You know, I've worked with kids who might be clumsy in some situations, but there was a girl I actually worked with who was uh, I think she's about 10, 10 or eleven years old, mm-hmm. who um, who had Aspergers, and she had never gone snowboarding before, and she went on a sort of challenging hill for the very first time. Yes. And made it all the way down the hill without falling. Wow. And so it's that hyper awareness of, yes. of body. Yes. And balance. Yes. One, yeah. That's something I didn't know at first for the first few years. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it ha- it's related to balance. I see. Yes. 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 And even, you know, even myself, because I, I see a lot of my, even myself and uh, with the sensory pieces, you know, and yes. I think that, that awareness has helped so much. So I have some auditory processing uh, challenges where I don't discriminate really well. So, you know, as also as a musician, that's a, can be an advantage. I'm hearing all the nuances yes. in, in when I'm playing with other people. When I'm having a conversation in a noisy environment, that's a real challenge. So I recently had, we were, and we were talking before uh, you hit record, I recently had some new neighbors move in next door to my office and they're, they're quite noisy. Yes. And my brain does not filter it out. And, you know, I went over there a couple of times when I was getting ready to record my own podcast, just asking to turn it down. And, and they did. And but like they they were they had this, their their music was just blaring and the bass mm. was loud. And mm-hmm. and so all week long, I'm like, I'm just feeling myself getting so frustrated. Like, oh, my gosh, like I, I was putting in like uh, earplugs and I'm putting headphones over my earplugs. And it's just like I was finding it really frustrating. And so I went over there yesterday and I was like, there's going to be two, either two things that are going to happen. Either I'm going to go over there and I'm going to get my butt kicked by these guys who were like <laughs> tattooed and totally yeah. like blue collar guys who were like could care less about what I'm doing over here. Yeah. And it's, but I went over there and said like, look, like I'm, I totally get wanting to listen to music. I'm a musician too. I love music. But I'm having a really hard time with my work here. Like 
could you possibly move your stereo over to the other side of your, your room and turn the bass down? And he was not happy with my request. And I was totally anxious doing it. But you know what? It's like, what was my alternative to sit here and be frustrated and not do anything yeah, about it? So not I even ask. into that anxiety. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I did what I had to do. I did want to go back for a moment, if you, if I may, with one of these stories I was telling in the very beginning. I realized I set it up and didn't finish part of the other story. And that was with um, telling you how I got fired from an internship and I was oh, yes. relating it to uh, your interest in bullying. Yes. I don't think I finished how it was related to bullying. Okay. <laughs> um, so when my getting fired was a response to really a, a, an assistant principal who really was a bully. And, you know, so I looked at, at that. I mean, he, so I was asking him questions about a client I was working with and he just wanted to know information about who the client was. And as a, as a social worker, I mean, that's privileged information. Of course. So I was asking him just as a student, because I was an intern, I was asking him like as the, in his role as the assistant principal of people services, would this typically be something that would be ethical to share? And he wouldn't even let me get my question out. Oh, He just like, who is it? Who he like stood up over his desk, like knuckles to the (sighs) desk. I swear there was smoke coming out of his ears. And he said to me, he's like, I've never had a social worker, let alone an intern, be so insubordinate in my entire life. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, really? I was like, slow down. And he just said right there, he's like, pack your stuff, you're done. Wow. And so I look at that situation is like I, I was I was bullied. But at the same time, I, you know, I always teach my clients to that, like, you know, if I would take that situation and just blame him, I would have missed a really valuable lesson. Right. And for me, that really valuable lesson is that schools can be very political and a lot of organizations can be very political. Very. And I'm kind of an idealistic person. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of taught me that you know, there is this idealized uh, sense of how things ought to be. And then there's the real world. And we have to live somewhere between that. Right. And our kids don't have any choice and they don't, a lot of times they don't know how to respond to something that just isn't fair like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about discipline, Eric. Our listeners a lot of times say they have trouble staying disciplined with mindfulness. Do you have a comment on that? Me too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we all, so many of us at least have challenges with discipline and, but, but you've managed to keep it as part of your life though. Yeah. You know, and the, so I think there's a, it's an, there's an important distinction between a mindfulness kind of meditation practice and mindful awareness. Right. I, I would say that I live my life being mindfully aware. And what I think about as mindful awareness is that is really engaging in a metacognitive process. And that, so that engaging in metacognition is that thinking about how we're thinking, pausing and asking ourselves, is this what I want to be doing right now? You know, how is this working for me? If something is not working for, for me, I ask myself, I pause and I say, okay, what's, what else is going on? And to me, that's that's mindful. That's being that's paying attention to the present moment without judgment and with curiosity, you know. And so, for me, mindfulness is more of a way of life versus a, an exercise or practice. 
Right. That makes sense. Eric, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? I say one person that has influenced my mindfulness practice as as of recent in in the last year that kind of recommitted me to get back to it. Um, I, I think his name is Dan Harris, who wrote the book Ten Percent Happier. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Mm, it has allowed me to explore anxiety, and in a very kind of paradoxical way, because I don't judge my anxiety, there is there have been times where I realized that I was actually getting more anxious than I had even realized, because when I noticed anxiety, I just kind of sat with the physical sensation without trying to push it away. Um, so that's, I became more aware of it. So it didn't heighten it. And at the same time, it sort of made me realize at a certain point that, oh, I was sort of getting anxious on a regular basis. So it's sort of a a double response to that question. You've already talked about breathing and the candle, but tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is always there when we look for it. Um, I think it's one of the, the easiest things for us to pay attention to. And when we focus really on our breath, we can expand outward from there. So when our thoughts are racing, when we're feeling anxious, we can always just focus on our breath. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be, Eric? Um, I think... It's, I mean, it's sort of related to mindfulness, mm-hmm. and that's a book uh, by Brene Brown uh, called Rising Strong, um, and it really has to do with looking at the, the difficult situations that we are in, learning how to get back up when we are down. Uh, so that's Rising Strong by Brene Brown, who's one of my favorite kind of just thought leaders uh, right now. Great. Can you share an app which helps you be more mindful? An app that helps me be more mindful, I would say uh, Sleep Cycle, uh, which helps me be more aware of my sleep patterns. What advice would you give a person who is new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? If you're a skeptic of it, I would suggest reading the book 10% Happier because uh, Dan Harris was also a skeptic and... I would say just try it. And I, I know I heard you on your last, uh, a recent podcast that, that you did about uh, figuring out kind of what, uh, I think your guest said, figuring out what would, uh, what are you hoping to, to solve? What are you hoping that uh, mindfulness would bring? Right. Eric, I can't even tell you what a pleasure it's been to spend this time with you today. I've really enjoyed talking with you and learned so much. I'm inspired by what you've done and how many people you're helping in your practice. Eric, how would we connect with you or learn more about what you do? The best way is uh, through my website, uh, ADHDrewired.com. You can find my podcast. You can also link up to my uh, coaching services. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Eric Tivers. Um, and all of those those kind of social media channels you can find uh, through my website, including uh, subscribing to the podcast. Terrific. Thanks again, Eric. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. 
Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.